Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the fifth episode in our new series covering our generations issue. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, senior editor at Plow. In this episode, we will be talking with Matthew Lee Anderson about IVF and with Potter Edmund Waldstein about generations in a monastery, the question of ethno-nationalism, and how Christians should think about the political communities they belong to other than the church. Now, we'll be speaking with Matthew Lee Anderson. Matthew is an assistant research professor of ethics and theology at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion and the associate director of Baylor in Washington. He's also my husband's podcast co-host on Mere Fidelity, which you should also be listening to. Welcome, Matthew. You have written a a piece for us for our generation's issue called Is There a Right to Have Children, which uh, is a provocative title. Do you want to talk about what your argument in that piece is and what its genesis was? You know, I've written about this issue so many different times, and it, for whatever reason, it just keeps coming, like it's haunt, it haunts me. The concern that I have throughout the essay, um, what I try to do is describe the the language of the right to have children, which is increasingly prevalent in uh, popular discourse around in vitro fertilization and other artificial reproductive technologies. And is being used to uh, justify using those technologies for lots of non-traditional family formations. Um, uh, so two members of the same sex having children, have a right to have children, just like, you know, a husband and wife have a right to have a child. Um, and so it, it's being construed as a positive right, not just the sort of right that would be where a couple would be protected from uh, interference by the government. It's being regarded as a positive right, as something that people have a real claim to. And so that's the sort of the, the launching off point. But really, the underlying dynamic of the essay is trying to think through why it is, how it is that uh, Christians have uh, regarded procreation, the ways in which we're entangled in broader social dynamics with respect to procreation, and ultimately how we can reconceive the household so that we can affirm the good of procreation without being bound to it as a, a kind of natural idolatry. Uh, I the, So one side of the, the essay is addressing concerns that I have on the right where people are defending procreation, but doing it in ways that I, I'm really nervous about. They're defending procreation on, on sort of naturalistic terms in ways that don't fully acknowledge or honor the ways in which the New Testament destabilizes or disturbs procreative impulses. Um, and so the essay is basically trying to wrestle through all of those threads. And just to be clear, this idea that there could be a positive right to be able to have kids only makes sense if there are technologies that enable that, right? Where that doesn't happen. That's right. You yeah. know, just through birds and bees method. That's right. Uh, you have to have some sort of means of producing children uh, for people who don't have the reproductive capabilities just intrinsically and internally within the relationship. And so the right to have children is itself embedded in a, a kind of technological imagination and discourse. And it's interesting because one of the things that I went and did was look up where some of the language 
originally came from um, because it is it is funny to think about having a right to have a child. And it turns out that in the 60s, as in vitro fertilization was starting to take hold um, in the UK, uh, the, um, the language of a right to have children was one way in which doctors pitched in vitro fertilization. They really tapped into the language of rights, which of course was massively potent, uh, politically potent for all on lots of issues. Um, but it really did uh, sort of drive social acceptance of in vitro fertilization as a practice for ordinary, you know, different sex couples. And uh, so in vitro fertilization, IVF, really has a pretty significant fan base, um, ironically, among some social conservative Christians. Is that is that overstating things? When I talk to Christians, you know, banging the anti-IVF drum makes me beloved. People just, they just <laughs> adore me for it. Um, it's one of the, it's funny because it's one of the most controversial positions that I think that I have. And among Christians, what you have are a lot of people who have used it in a way that um, they've used it very prayerfully and deliberately. And so this is the line that I get a lot when I talk with Christians about IVF. I'll raise concerns and I'll hear from people and they'll say, we felt those concerns. We really acknowledge that there are complications here. We proceeded very prayerfully, very deliberately, and we decided to do it. And I don't doubt that they proceeded very deliberately and uh, and prayerfully about it, but it, there's a way in which that's insufficient justification from my standpoint. I, I, I was reminded there was a theological ethicist who talked about exceptions to abortion, a different sort of case, but one of the things that the language of ex exceptions uh, implies or the way in which it gets used is that the exceptions have to have sufficient reasons. Uh, so if the, there's a sufficiently grave problem, then we can have an exception, we can have an abortion. And this theological ethicist once quipped that really what that bottomed out was in, in was abortion on demand with tears, uh, which I think is a great line and, and it haunts me because the idea that people can approach these issues deliberately, well, you're going to have tears about it, but really effectively what it's going to bottom out in is you doing something that I think is actually probably morally dubious, if not fully wrong. We've been beating and plow a bit of a pro-baby drum for a while, and yeah. it seems like super necessary to do that in uh, a culture where, you know, you look at the statistics, uh, on certain studies of, of younger folks saying they don't want to have kids um, because of the climate or whatever. Um, factually, you know, low birth rates are a problem. Uh, you know, I was seeing on Twitter yesterday a, a very interesting exchange uh, between a bunch of people who were, you know, comparing notes when they last held a baby, right? So th there was a real sort of children of men problem that we have as a society, and we at plow and I know you too, right? Or for babies, like we're, you know, like kids are, are a good thing. Uh, we, we support the having of them, but like you said, um, not at all costs. And, uh, so 
I just wanted to put that out there for our listeners right at the beginning. This is not an anti-baby argument we're making here. Um, this is coming from the point of view of, yeah, babies are really, really great. pronatalism. Obnoc- almost obnoxious pronatalism. The reason we asked you to do the, the piece was a bit as a corrective to say, you know, from a Christian point of view specifically, um, yeah, children are a great good. They're not the greatest good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that, I. I really appreciate you saying that. I am aggressively pro babies. There's a, there's a corner of Twitter that thinks that has gotten it in their heads for some reason. Uh, I just do not understand that thinks that I'm anti babies. There's there's one person in particular who has said that on the internet, and it's just they also think you're a Marxist. It's so bizarre to me. I wrote my dissertation. My dissertation is a defense of having children because I went to a talk where the person argued that we don't have a right to have more than one or two children and that that right is not grounded in the constitution and i sat in the back of the talk and i was i was struggling with my prior dissertation topic and all i thought was nine no i've met the enemy i've got it like i've got to defend having babies in this world but the problem from my standpoint is the reassertion of the good of children on its own terms is insufficient. You have to, I, I think about this with nature and, you know, Susanna reminded me of that hideous strength. And one of the things that's really fascinating about that hideous strength is Merlin comes back and you, you this have is by C, the novel by C.S. Lewis. Lewis. And, you know, Merlin really wants to use nature to defeat the enemies and wants to recall the glory of the woods and the rivers and thinks that he can do it. And, and Ransom, who's the, the sort of mouthpiece of Lewis, I take him to be a little bit in this moment, is basically like, no, nature just on its own terms is not going to be sufficient to defeat the, the forces of that hideous strength. You need something that's beyond nature to defend nature when people have turned against it. This is why I've got I've got a forthcoming essay on Robert George's natural law th- theory, which I'm very sympathetic to, but one of my one of my deep questions is when people have turned against the natural, how do you defend the natural on its own terms? It seems like you need something beyond the nature to do it. And so you have to be un remittingly theological and that complicates accounts of procreation in ways that provide room for people who don't have children for whatever reason yeah i mean i think that one way to think about this is that if you try to grasp hold of nature so you're in a position where you see nature being attacked from a kind of the nice in that hideous strength place of kind of like anti-natural um, people who want to like pave over all the, you know, pave paradise and put up a parking lot and also like, you know, be transhumanist and also accidentally be, you know, monkeying around with demons and uh, all these horrible kind of like things, including a lot of stuff that has to do with reproductive technology. And you have this like instinct of being like, no, we need to grasp hold of nature. Nature is good. And there's a real like, if you grasp hold of nature on any terms, you'll lose even nature, let alone the things that are beyond nature, i.e., you know, the supernatural and, and God's purposes for us. Yeah, that's right. Chesterton makes this point. I think it's in, it's in his 
biography of Francis, it might be, uh, talks about the way in which Rome embraced nature and ended up turning against nature because that was all it had. Uh, and I think that, that that principle, it really worries me about pronatalist movements in the States. I think that the, the lead proponents of pronatalism are very careful about this sort of thing, and I would not implicate them in this, at, certainly at the policy level, names that I think you've had right for you. Uh, I really admire and I really respect the work that they're doing and I'm fully supportive of it. But there's what happens at the policy level and then there's how that gets filtered out down into the world of Twitter and then beyond. And if you look at eugenics movements historically, there are pronatalist dimensions to them. Like pronatalism does have deep undercurrents that can be really pernicious if they are defended on exclusively naturalistic terms. And, I, and I'm worried about that. So I, I want my pronatalism to be sufficiently, properly, fully, unmitigatedly theological. Right. I mean, yeah, there is those Nazi breeding colonies, right? I mean, there's all kinds of crazy wormholes people have gone down. We should, we should get into the arguments of your piece, though, um, because you've, you've said you know, you see uh, IVF as dubious or even wrong. Um, that's in your piece. And, it, you know, we should say straight out, I'm sure um, among our listeners too, uh, there are people who are going to find that really hard to understand. Um, there are couples, you know, and we all probably know folks in this situation um, who feel you know, Im Im immense pain uh, that they are not able to have children. And uh, then here's this technology that seems like it might provide a way out. Um, and so <laughs> you said jokingly at the beginning, you know, this makes you very unpopular to, to you know, question whether this is a good path. Um, but there are obviously some big human um, costs we're talking about here. So we should acknowledge that. And get into why is it you know that we shouldn't try to have kids at any cost as much as that may rip us up yeah so there's lots of variations of the argument and i and i fully recognize the cost that this puts on various types of couples i think within our churches we have to acknowledge the ways in which those who are childless can bear unique witness to the virtue of hope um so there is a real tragedy to childlessness that, that has to be honored and acknowledged. But I think when it comes to in vitro fertilization, my concerns about it are both particular to the, the couple and what they are doing and particular to the process of in vitro fertilization and systemic for thinking about medicine and reproductive health more broadly. One of the things that I, I really think is objectionable about it is that it regards, it entails that childlessness is inherently pathological. That childlessness is itself intrinsically a diseased condition for a male and a female when they come together to uh, conceive. Because you can imagine there's, there's, there's an element of luck in bringing life into the world. Fundamentally, we think that life is a gift from God 
And God withholds that gift within his own providence for all sorts of reasons. And so you can very easily imagine a couple who are perfectly healthy, who come together on a regular basis, who do not conceive because that element of luck never works out in their favor. And from that standpoint, procreation has a, a particular sort of valence or meaning that IVF absolutely destroys. What IVF means is that their experience is inherently pathological, that they are diseased and broken. And there's that's that's intrinsic to the structure of in vitro fertilization. There's also, of course, the actual sort of process itself. And, you know, some versions of IVF, not all, most versions of IVF, not all, um, entail creating extra embryos who are then, you know, and we can say either what or who, and I would say who, are then either discarded or frozen, in, you know, for future reference um, to do something with maybe later. And, you know, depending on what your anthropology is, what you think those embryos are or who you think they are, that's obviously a big deal. That's right. And there are other problems too. I mean, you have additional burdens on women, Mm -hmm. in the process uh you know women are <laughs> newsflash already disproportionately burdened when it comes to the process of making human life the male's role is is relatively easy but one of the things that in vitro fertilization does is it takes that already un like disproportionate burden and it intensifies it on women such that women have to undergo fairly invasive procedures including hormonal regimens, needles being stuck into them, et cetera, for the process to work, the male's part in the role is by and large as easy as it usually is. But the male's par part in IVF classically or traditionally involves acts that have been regarded as morally wrong by uh, Christians. So they have those sorts of reasons. And there are others too. I mean, it's, it's, it's an extremely fraught practice that I think any Christian who's approaching it, once you start looking at it from all the different angles, I, I think it's impossible to justify. I just, I don't, I cannot see my way towards aff affirming it. So some Catholic listeners probably right about now are saying, you know, we have this nice way of talking about things um, in the catechism that draws a natural law. Um, you don't really do that in your in your essay. You could imagine that technology, medical technology, would reach a point where, for instance, um, the moral problem of these unwanted embryos wouldn't present itself. Why w would that also be a problem, and why, um, if we're not applying a kind of Catholic um, sort of natural law way of reasoning about this? Yeah, so the the world where we don't have extra embryos in the process of in vitro fertilization that's that's already this world you can do natural cycle in vitro fertilization where you only create one embryo per cycle and you don't have spare ones and that's increasingly popular uh, in certain circles and i think you know in those sorts of cases I still have questions about what it means to detach the making of human life from the face-to-face -face encounter 
between male and female and the introduction of third parties into the making of human life. I mean, extreme genetic screening, that's only the outer tip. Every embryo is graded, whether they do genetic screening or not. They're graded for viability. So if they, you know, create eight embryos, uh, they're going to grade them give them scores and they're going to use the highest graded embryos first because those are the most likely to be successful and we should think about that grading process intrinsically which is intrinsic to the process what does it mean that we are marking off some embryos as more viable than others and do those ostensibly exclusively medical designations stay quarantined to the medical or do they lend themselves towards other types of assessments of the value of human life and this is where intrinsic to the process is our conceptions of efficiency that in invariably prioritize some members of the species over other members of the species have we done enough thorny stuff <laughs> susanna because think- we could get to Back to C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength, which I, think I know should. both of you are really, really eager to do. And Matthew's essay ends with a beautiful um, exploration of that book and how it kind of, you know, well, you say, you say, what, what, how does that fit with this, right? There's not a lot of IVF in C.S. Lewis. No, there's not, but it does get mentioned, actually. Um, he uh, He talks about those who are creating life within the lab. I, th- I forget exactly what the line is, um, but he's he's alive to this possibility. And you know, the Tolkien, I, I begin with a uh, an example from Tolkien, the lay of Eotru and Itron, where it's astonishing how cognizant Tolkien seems to be that these types of issues are coming, even when he's writing right in the shadow of world war ii um but i you know that idea strength the vision of the household that it gives i think is is just terrific and unparalleled within literature susanna you've read this you've thought about this a lot yeah i've thought about this obsessively so um one of the sort of interesting things and and we should also say that pete's sister is also one of our interlocutors here who like takes us to task on twitter when we like misread things or forget about key things right or haven't read that hideous strength every two years yeah or have it like for your entire life as she apparently has um that hideous strength is about procreation and about um it's about a billion different things but one of the things that it's about is procreation and also about kind of fruitfulness in general one of the key sort of things that's going on is that there's this there are these there's this contrasting households or contrasting communities one of which is the like the fake kind of infernal community of um the college the university that mark static is involved with and specifically the nice which is this sort of hyper like transhumanist like it's a scary acronym for yeah, it, it's the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, is I believe what it stands for. And then in contrast to where they're doing all kinds of like ivf kinds of things. And um, in contrast to that, there is a community called St. Anne's on the Hill, which is just this sort of, it's the household is the household of Ransom, who's the, the main character, more or less. Um, but the couple who are the kind of house parents of the household are the Dimbles. 
And Mother Dimble is, she's called Mother Dimble. She doesn't have any children. They, they were just like naturally infertile. They couldn't have children. Um, they weren't, they were very clearly not contracepting as opposed to Jane and Mark who were contracepting. Um, and there's a kind of, there's this vision of this household as the place where fertility happens and um, fruitfulness happens for, for the good of the world. And Mother Dimble is the mother of this household, even though she doesn't have any children. And that kind of vision of fruitfulness, even in the absence of natural children, is, I think, really striking and really kind of interesting, especially if you think about C.S. Lewis's own life. You know, he married very late in life. He didn't have any children of his own. Um, ended up, you know, adopting his his wife's two children. Um, it's just a beautiful kind of, it's one of the most attractive households in all of literature that I can think of. Um, and it just has this, like everyone in the world at some point, every Christian nerd in the world is like, I want to live in St. Anne's and grow winter vegetables and have a bear and fight evil in that way. Um, and it's this very kind of Tasha Tudory, like um, crunchy, wonderful, natural, um, fruitful place. And Mother Dimble is the mother of it, even though she doesn't have children. And that's just wonderful. I think that's exactly right, Susanna. It's one of the reasons why I love the book so much. I mean, matrimony is the opening word. That's where C.S. Lewis begins. And one of the things that I think it's important to say about the household is that it is a household that has marriage at the center. One of the things that we see these days is attempts to reclaim household conceptions that don't have marriage at the center. So you have uh, David Brooks wrote a long essay, I think at the Atlantic last year on, or maybe it was the year before, on sort of intergenerational communities that are popping up as replacements for traditional nuclear family homes. And while I'm sympathetic to that sort of thing as a social remedy. I do think it's important to still have marriage and fruitfulness at the center. And it is, you know, like it's significant that Mother Dimble is Mother Dimble, that the, the, the language, the grammar of the household is fully intertwined with marriage and procreation. But the fruitfulness is, it's transposed, to use a favorite image of C.S. Lewis from another essay, it's transposed into another key. And I think that that's what's so wonderful about it. It's an affirmation of all the goods of marriage and procreation, but in a way that shows their deepest and truest basis. There is not a work that I think displays an alternate to the social pathologies or that diagnoses the social pathologies that beset 21st century America better. I, I, it's, it's really an extraordinary work. And I just love how theological it is. I, I love that he, while it's a work of social, political, philosophical criticism in one respect, the takeaway is that you need something beyond nature to have these fights. Well, I think we've now got you on record, Matthew, saying something that won't get you in trouble. Uh, C.S. Lewis is good. Um, and dear listeners, whether or not you um, kind of immediately agreed with our discussion, I urge you to read uh, Matthew's piece. Uh, it's very thoughtful, uh, very sensitive, and I think it's a, an important issue that's going to only become more important as medical technology uh, 
becomes ever more invasive and, and ever more powerful. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on and being willing to uh, incur the anger. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny. Well, or at least the disappointment yeah. of, of folks who were hoping to hear a different message. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, like, and I'm, I'm grateful to have the chance to talk with you guys. And I'm, and I'm thankful that you think the piece is sensitive. I do try to be sensitive on some of these issues. <laughs> um, it may not seem like that once I get into a polemical mode. But I, I do acknowledge that these are questions and issues that strike very close to the core of who we are. And in one respect, like the tragedy of childlessness is absolutely unequivocally real. And you have to drink the cup of childlessness to its last drop. And I think that one of the things that I have found is that those who are involuntarily childless are often willing to do that, um, but it's it's very hard, and there's there's just nothing easy about this world. Well, thank you so much, and uh, look forward to having you back on one of these days. Thanks immensely for having me. And now we'll be hearing from Potter Edmund Waldstein. Potter Edmund is a regular Plow contributor, friend of the pod, and a monk at Heiligenkreuz Abbey just outside Vienna. Welcome, Potter. Thank you once again, Potter Edmund, for letting me hassle you into doing something for me. Um, well, I'm very glad to come on the <laughs> podcast. It's not going to be I, last I, time. I remember with fondness my uh, my visit to the Bruderhof in Fox Hill, and, and since then I've also visited the Bruderhof here in Austria. Yeah, you've so been. I'm always a, glad to come on your podcast. Yeah, you've been a good friend to the two new communities outside Vienna. Um, one of the uh, things that I feel like you'd be in a particularly good position to talk about is what's the how do, how do we think within a kind of Christian context about um, how generations work? Because obviously you're part of a, a monastery and um, Heiligenkreuz has been going for a thousand years or so, um, which is many, many generations. But you guys don't generate because you're celibate. So how do how do generations work within something like a monastery? Um, yeah, how does that work? It is kind of a peculiarity of of the New Testament that it switches from a focus on natural generation, which you have very strong in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you get kind of a a new vision uh, in the the prologue of John already, right? The the Children of God are born not of bloods, not of the desire of man, not of the will of man, but of God, uh, not of the will of the flesh, and so on. Um, and celibacy is, is sort of a very clear uh, sign of that, that our life in Christ is a supernatural life that's not given by natural generation, but that's given to us by Christ through baptism. Um, and the monastery is, is a way of sort of living out the the grace of baptism. But uh, there is something analogous to generations in the monastery, as you already hinted, namely, you have old monks and you have young monks. Uh, and, <laughs> and the young monks are supposed to honor the old monks and the old monks are supposed to love the young monks, St. Benedict says. Uh, so <laughs> we do our best with that. The, the old monks have a lot of wisdom to impart to the younger 
monks. As you kind of hinted, there's a kind of, um, there's a role that it seems to me that something like a monastery plays, or I guess not, there's not really anything like a monastery. So that, that a monastery plays in, within the kind of broader um, structure of Christendom or of a Christian society, which is it's like this kind of, you know, while natural family and natural generation is good and God loves it and God blesses it, it's almost as though the monastery is this perpetual reminder of the supernatural engine that's that's above and beneath the the natural good of family. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that's very much the the intention. Well, um, in a way, the 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 monastery is a sign to the rest of the world is in a way kind of a secondary intention mm -hmm. uh, or ought to be for the monks themselves at least that is uh the the monastic movement begins with people wanting and and continues in every reform of monasticism is like this the primary motivation is you yourself want to serve god as wholeheartedly as possible just live out the sermon to, on the mount completely yeah yeah, and so initially, that's uh, it's not the the idea of being a sign to the rest of the world is not sort of in the in the foreground, but um, it should be then the result of that that you are a sign also to the rest of the world that God is real. It's worth living entirely for Him. In the middle of the monastery, there's a garden that's locked on all sides, um, but open upwards towards heaven. Obviously, it's the the Paradisus Claustralis, the paradise of the of the cloister, also called the Hortus Conclusus, the locked garden. And that is clearly a reference to the Song of Songs, right? And in the Song of Songs, the bride is called the locked garden and the sealed fountain. And that's a sign of, of virginity. Um, but here it's a sign of virginity as specifically as concentrating everything on God. So if you watch a movie, the happy ending is always when the boy and the girl get together at the end. Um, and this is a sign that the ultimate happy end is, is something beyond that. It's our union with God, which doesn't, isn't fully consummated in this life. It is, um, I, I'm sure I didn't invent this, but the idea of is the history of the world a comedy or a tragedy? And the sort of definitive answer is that it's a comedy specifically because it ends in marriage. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is often the the one of the justifications given for uh, Dante's Divine Comedy being called the comedy. I was wondering ends, about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess the other uh, thing that all of these all of these questions kind of circle around um, is there's this idea that grace the, that grace in the Christian life does not destroy nature but perfects it, and it seems. I mean, that seems obviously true, um, but it also seems like it's more complicated than that because grace is not just enabling us to live our best pagan lives as we ought to have lived them. There is a kind of thoroughly from outside reordering of, um, of loves. And that does, kind of, that does kind of interrupt the logic of the pagan family as the one source of, you know, the, the location of worship, um, you know, as Fustel de Collange describes, and of um, the source of hope for the future, because, you know, you're, 
your children are the one, your children and grandchildren are the ones who are going to keep up the worship of the household gods, and hopefully your memory won't be lost um, because of their glory. Um, Christianity is not saying you haven't been able to do that well because of, of original sin. We're going to heal your original sin so that you can then do the pagan household perfectly and, and everything will be great. So what does Christianity right. say <laughs> about grace and well, nature? Yes. Well, <laughs> we have 10 minutes. Just kidding. <laughs> very good. Yeah, but maybe a kind of prologue before getting to Christianity. We have more than grace 10 minutes, nature. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, <laughs> but as you know, um, even within paganism itself, there's a kind of transcendence of uh, the... The pagan household. So you have um, in in Aristotle's politics, especially much more than uh, even than in Plato, um, you have a clear distinction between the household and the city. Um, in in some passages, I mean, it's it's hard to tell with Plato because Socrates is famously ironic, so you never know what he's saying, but. But, you know, there are, there are passages where um, it seems like he wants the city to just be one giant family in a way. Whereas Aristotle is much clearer in distinguishing the the good of the family and the good of the city. And in saying the good of the city is kind of a higher and more universal good that uh, is not opposed to the good of the family, but in some way transcends the good of the family. And it's not enough to just... Uh, be a good family man, you have to also kind of transcend the circle of the family and seek the uh, more universal common good that's based uh, on a political life rather than on a family life. Um, that often cities do have some kind of blood relation that is uh, they initially start out as kind of an extension of family relations with tribes and so on like that. But for Aristotle, it's very clear that that's ultimately not what holds a city together. It's not blood relations. What holds a city ultimately together is um, a life of political virtue um, that can only be had in the city. So in a way, the, what Christianity does is in a way something analogous to that, but um, supernatural. That is, it's calling us the, the new people that Christ uh, founds, um, the new Israel that the that he founds when he gathers the twelve apostles, as sort of the new, the head of the new the heads of the new twelve tribes of Israel, it's an Israel that's not based on family ties. Unlike the the Israel was up up until then based on although you had of course the the God fearing among the nations and so on the uh, and you had proselytes, it was kind of a marginal. Um, phenomenon. Basically, Israel is about uh, bodily descent from Abraham. And you receive the, the membership in the covenant through circumcision, which is given to those who are born of the, the household of God. Um, Israel is basically a family. Um, but what Christ does is, in a way, transcend the limits of that family by founding this new Israel that's based not on bodily generation, but on grace. And grace, um, as it's described uh, in the Gospel of John, and as it's developed in, in, the, in the Christian theological tradition, 
um, not just the Gospel of John, also, of course, the epistles of St. Paul and of St. Peter, right? The, it's St. Peter who talks about grace as being participation in divine nature, which comes to be the, the main way of understanding grace. That is, grace is a way for human beings to participate in divine life, to have a life that's more than human, that's supernatural in the sense that it's above human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were describing the sort of Aristotle's vision for, uh, you know, community based on political virtue as opposed to community based on blood, the the sort of example from history that I think illustrates this most is the, or not most, one of the examples is um, Cicero's discussion of this with Atticus in um, his family house in, in Arpinum, where he's sort of saying, this is, you know, this is where I come from. This this is my, uh, this is my blood and soil. These are my lares and penates. Um, Atticus is obviously Roman by birth. Cicero is not. Rome, which is Cicero's home of choice and, and polity of choice, because it's distinct from Arpinum, is this sort of vision of um, the trans, the, the, the transcendent, essentially, the cosmopolis, um, which then itself kind of becomes a typological pointer towards the universal cosmopolis of the church, it seems to me. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. You see this in, um, I mean, the in the New Testament, the the attitude towards Rome is mostly negative for <laughs> good reasons. Right? As the, <laughs> the killer of Christ and persecutor yeah. of the church and so on. But there are some there are some uh, hints uh, that Rome does, in a way, also foreshadow the universality of the community that Christ has founded. So, for example, the um, the words of our Lord to Saint Peter that He is the rock, and on this rock I will found my church. They're spoken on the shores of the Lake of Tiberias. Near Caesarea, it says. So you have all these these names of Roman empires are alluded to, um, and I think that uh, Matthew there is is hinting at a kind of parallel between the universality of the Roman Empire and the universality of the Church. Mm-hmm. And obviously, also the the vision of Daniel kind of has Rome as the final bad empire, yes. but yes. then Christ's empire that comes after that it's not totally different in kind and it also does seem to grow out of it in some way right um so how do given that how do we think about the good of kind of political communities that are not universal now like could you make the argument that okay this is all true but it's but it it has to do with the church it's uh supernatural and therefore when we're talking about politics we can focus entirely again on the something that's more biological, that's sort of like a kinship-based vision of politics. Um, do you think that's legitimate, or is, are there reasons other than like how do you think about that? Well, I think that um, that human beings are rational animals, so they're both. They have both uh, uh, bodily, sensual, animal side and also a spiritual side, as it were, um, <laughs> right? Rationality is a spiritual power. And so um, you don't want to, you, you want to have those two in harmony, not at war with each other, right? So just as 
in a virtuous human being, reason is, is guiding and governing the the sensual passions and so on. Um, so in a good in good human politics, I think sort of kinship relationships um, have a role. It's not that they should be excluded entirely from human politics, um, but they needed to they need to be ordered by reason and reason is able to to understand more universal goods than uh, the goods of uh, kinship networks um, and and to understand that we can have a good that we share with people that we're not related to at least I mean I think we're related to all human beings <laughs> ultimately but, <laughs> by blood relations but <laughs> but where the relation is so remote that we can't trace it anymore still we share a common nature and a common rational nature which means that we can have communion in uh, in rational goods, in, in common goods, which uh, are shareable without being divided or diminished. Obviously, the category of political virtue is kind of the primary way to, to think about how one goes about sharing those goods across across kinship groups. But friendship also seems to me to be a major basis of politics, both in, in you know primarily in classical authors, um, but also through the Christian tradition. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I think that's very true, what you said. Um, Aristotle says the legislator looks more to promoting friendship even than to promoting justice. Um, and, I mean, um, friendship is kind of the, the privileged locus of uh, human beings sharing uh, together in a good Um and so in friendship in the in the highest sense uh the good is the good of human beings as such it's virtue right the friendship of virtue is sharing together in the the best human activities virtuous activities um and ultimately the the highest the very highest human activity is contemplation of the truth and that is uh the what ultimately the the deepest kinds of friendship are going to be founded on but but uh, as a kind of necessary prelude to that they have to be founded on sharing in moral virtue that is in virtues of activity of doing good um, and that's what enables human beings to have a truly political life to have a true common good um, the other category of that I think also falls into this, like let's complexify what human society is made up of is adoption. And I just recently, because I went on this kind of weird, obsessive um, dream of Scipio tear, what I found out on my little obsessive detour um, a couple of weeks ago was that Scipio Africanus Minor, who's the one who had the dream, and I'm not gonna recap for every, everyone, just Google it, whatever. Um, <laughs> there's a great there's a great discussion of it by the way in C.S. Lewis's book The Discarded Image he talks about oh, the image man. of the world that you get in in the I think that might be I feel like okay so I feel like I pro that's probably where I first heard of it and then um when I took this Chaucer class my um in, in college my professor made me memorize the 
entire like section, the Dream of Scipio section in the Parliament oh, of excellent, Fowls. Excellent. Yeah, so I can yeah. still do that, but I'm not going to do that on this <laughs> podcast because it would it would be self indulgent. Um, anyway, so but Scipio Africanus Minor, what I did not realize until a couple of weeks ago was not actually the biological grandson of Scipio Africanus Major, who's the one who like he has this kind of. Vaguely, oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, he was adopted into that okay. gens. Uh-huh. So Scipio Africanus Minor was adopted into Scipio Africanus Major's family. And that adoption was so powerful, apparently, that the his dead grandfather, his dead grandfather by adoption, supernaturally recognized him as his grandson and heir. And that was the basis on which he brought him up to see, you know, sort of Rome as the speck on the surface of the globe and told him about his destiny and then told him that his destiny was not enough and he needed to look beyond, etc. It's all great stuff. Um, but anyway, so adoption is a kind of powerful social force even before the, that Christian, the Christian sort of theological concept of adoption builds on. It does not invent from whole cloth. Yes. Yeah, I think that's very true. The there's something analogous to this in the monastic tradition, namely the institution of oblates. Um, but I'm a Cistercian, and one of the the differentiating marks of the Cistercians is that we're very much against this. <laughs> so we <laughs> we don't do this. But uh, but in the rule of Saint Benedict, you can read about this, and this was done by Benedictine monasteries up until the uh, early up until early early modern times. The the oblate thing. A family would bring basically a, a young child, a little boy, to the monastery and offer him to the monastery. They'd wrap his hands in the altar cloth. There's this whole thing that they did. And and they had to the parents had to sign this sort of contract that they were that they were renouncing all their authority over their child and they, they could never have any more claims on him. Uh, and then basically he was he would just be raised as a monk. Um, you didn't really have much choice in the matter. <laughs> so you're what you're telling So what you're telling me is that the Cistercian approach to this is like the Anabaptist version of mon- of monastic living where you have to make an adult <laughs> you have to have an adult call to it. <laughs> Basically, yes, yes. Awesome. All right, so all all that being said, um how given kind of the all of what we've said about um, how social life is ordered and how are we really going to do this in like 20 minutes? Like this is going to be like a, I don't know, political yeah, let's do society it. Let's go for it. 101. All right. Um, so given that everything that we've, that we've said about how political life is ordered um, and all the ingredients that go into making a human society and also how that is relativized by and beefed up by and, made better by and also put in its place by grace. How, like, what can we hope for in terms of um, political community, uh, like non, non-eternal, non-church, non-city um, of God political community on earth and what should it be based on? And how do we make our communities better? Do we need to be ethno-nationalists? Should we be uh, Holy Roman Empire restorationists, et cetera? A very important question, and my my answer is is, is sort of typically typically weaselly uh, Catholic priest answer. It's the <laughs> <laughs> the Jesuitical answer, mm-hmm. um, namely it, it's kind of a both and thing. You want to uh, 
it's I've been I've actually been writing something about the the book of Revelation with respect to this, um, namely about the way in which the vision of the heavenly city that St. John gives us in the book of Revelation is a vision that sort of um, unites all kinds of political perfections. So everything that's good in all kinds of different political situations, they're somehow united in in that city. So on the one hand, you have kind of the ambition of the great cities of the ancient Orient of Babylon and Nineveh and so on, of being sort of this universal, uh, the king of Babylon is ruling the entire world and so on. And clearly that is realized in the heavenly city. You have uh, God and the lamb who are ruling the entire new heaven and new earth and so on, this universality. Um, but you also have, St. John is writing, of course, to the, the churches of Asia Minor, to Greek-speaking Christians who are living in Greek cities who have this uh, Greek civic tradition of um, participatory politics where the, the citizens, at least, the, which are, were kind of a privileged class, we think of citizens as being everyone, they were kind of a privileged class, but nevertheless, they, they participated in, in, in deliberating about the common good of the city and so on. And you get that in the heavenly Jerusalem too, because on the one hand, God is ruling, he's all in all, but on the other hand, it says that the saints will, will rule as kings uh, forever. So each one is also a ruler, uh, also in some way contributing to the common good of that city. Um, so you have all these different perfections, imperial, royal, aristocratic, democratic, they all come together. And so looking at earthly cities uh, and states and nations and all kinds of political arrangements, I think we shouldn't deny anything that's good about them. So um, we should affirm everything that's good about earthly political ideals and say, look, Christianity is not, grace doesn't destroy nature and anything that's good in a natural political community Christianity is not against what's good. You can have the good mm-hmm. things, right? <laughs> so, but what it's what I think we should be against is setting up any particular political arrangement as sort of the only good thing, right? So, if we say ethno-nationalism is the only way to go, right? Everyone should be. This is what you know. Nineteenth-century Czech nationalists uh, were saying in the Austrian Reichsrat. Look. Nationalism is the only way to go. Self-determination of nations. All the Czechs should do their thing. All the Germans should do their thing. The Hungarians their thing. Um, terrible idea. <laughs> In Central Europe, really, really bad idea because everyone was living all mixed up, right? You had German villages next to Czech villages next to Hungarian villages scattered all over. Nationalism, really bad idea. Look, Just look at the Balkans, right? In, in recent times, after the breakup of Yugoslavia, if, if you make this sort of the only way to arrange politics, you're going to get ethnic cleansing and a disaster, right? So sure, where you have strong um, sort of uh, national groups with a common history, common language, um, and, you know, why not say, you know, affirm what's good in that, you know, let uh, whatever, 
uh, I can't think of an example. Iceland. 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 Right. Yeah. They're like yeah, literally. Let the Icelanders, you know, yeah. do their thing. They have. But oh no. my gosh. So they ha- there's this app that you that they some Icelander invented that's connected to their like genetic database of all 300 million of them, and the app is called Incest Spoiler. And when I when like two, <laughs> when two Icelandic kids are like at a bar next to each other, you like call up your app and then you bump your phones together and it gives you like a you're all clear or you're too closely related <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> i mean good for them yeah, i guess <laughs> anyway so carry on sorry and then conversely <laughs> but so i think there there is in in some situations for example in in central europe it's it makes sense to have multinational co- political communities where you have people of various language and nation groups i mean like the austrian empire just yeah. saying you know. <laughs> no you're allowed to stand it we stand we absolutely stand <laughs> and we can we can definitely affirm the goodness of that too and and the way in which that is sort of of foreshadowing uh, and a kind of natural on the natural level of the universality of the church and of the heavenly jerusalem but again i don't think you should absolutize that and say, okay, what we need is um, the UN to become uh, the only authority in the world and, you know, and everyone else just obeys what the Secretary General of the UN says and, you know, we have this absolute universal political arrangement. Um, that, I don't think that would be the way to go either. So affirm everything that's good and, and, and don't try to make anything the one single answer to everything. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems to me, so my husband... Um, has been going hard on typology lately. And it almost seems to me um, that what we're talking about is a kind of political typology. And so what we have our eyes on is the heavenly Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come down to earth and um, all that that means. And as you say, revelation and, you know, elsewhere in scripture, like the the glimpses that we have of that are incredibly complicated and weird. It's like in a weird way, like it's, it's a lot of different things. And then if you sort of try to work backwards and think about like what Adam was supposed to have done and like what that would have looked like if he hadn't screwed it up. And then what that does look like now that Christ has done what Adam didn't and like all this, it's very complicated. And it seems to me that different political communities and different kinds of political order are they're like um little windows or they're like facets of a of a a, a gem um that kind of reflect that complexity of good in different ways exactly yeah i think that's exactly right don't try to make one thing into another exactly um, and there's a kind of like aspect of you know practical reason that has to do with just being a good observer like seeing well and that's why I kind of think that like, you know, I'm very grateful that Aristotle was kind of primarily a biologist because like one of the things that he's really good at is reminding us to just look carefully at what it is that we're thinking about. But nevertheless, he, he thought that political life was only possible in the Greek Obviously. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I really I'm I'm such a chauvinist about New York City that I really that's one of the things that I love most about him. He just was a chauvinist about his city and I, I really appreciate that about him. 
Well, yeah. you know, you say about his city, but he oh, lived well, of most course. of his life yeah. outside of yeah. his city. Yeah, yeah. Because right? he was from uh, Stagira, Stagira in North yeah. Eastern Greek, yeah. yeah. Northeastern Greece, but he lived for many years in Athens as a metic. In other words, right. he wasn't a citizen, citizen of Athens. Right. Um, so, I yeah. mean, many such cases. People come to New York and get really, really into New York who, necess who aren't necessarily New Yorkers. I feel like that's probably all we... This is longer than we should have gone on anyway. That's probably um, good. The bell yeah. is ringing for Vespers already. So okay, well, I will let you go. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Potter. So It's so great well, to Thank chat. you for having me on. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine. Or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community and we depend on them as a kind of an extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with Leah Labresco and Alexander Rakin about medically assisted suicide, and we'll also be answering your questions.